Welcome to the Alamo City Investing Show with your hosts, Aaron Beal and Jason Lee. This is number four. Today, we are going to continue talking about finding your first flip, flipping houses, kind of where we left off from the first one. And if you're watching this, we have a special guest for you. Special guest, my puppy, Arthur. So everyone say hi, Arthur. If you're just listening, you're not going to see Arthur, the tiny wiener dog puppy, but if anyway, he's he's like we've he's like cover. yeah he's like four pounds he's tiny five pounds oh he's teeny tiny but we won't waste too much time on that so well, let's just jump right into it so I think where we left off last time was talking about you know all the different areas of San Antonio what we like what we recommend all that good stuff you know we've kind of found some places we like don't like you know what do we what do we do next yeah so now that you have. You know, a realistic expectation for time and money. You kind of know the areas you're looking for. Next, it's it's pretty much trying to find the deals and then how to run the numbers. So as far as where to find deals from, for me, when I was first starting off, I was scrounging for, on the MLS. I got set up with a realtor and just had her like pretty much send me anything with the words, you know, keywords like investor, flip, TLC, that sort of stuff. And all the areas I was looking at, I just made offer after offer after offer until eventually one stuck. So definitely the MLS, especially right now in this market, is a pretty good top place to to look for. Second, wholesalers going to local meetups. Obviously, you have the big guys, you know, New Western Net Worth are pretty big here. But a lot of smaller independent wholesalers, I would say, go connect with them. They're the ones that usually have uh, stuff with more margin on them cause just because they're smaller operations. Yeah, I would say those are the two. I don't know if you can think of some other places people can source some deals from. No, I think that's good. I'm going to brag on us because I think we're the best. But, you know, so I would say, you know, hit us up if you're looking for deals. But also the thing that we provide that, you know, is probably a different perspective than a lot of wholesalers is we actually flip a lot of houses. So we aren't just kind of like guessing numbers, like we're running them the way we would if we were buying them. So I would say that sets us apart a little different than just your, hey, I started wholesaling. I've never actually done a project. I've never actually bought a house before. But with that, regardless of who you're buying from, don't trust their numbers. If you're buying a deal from us, don't trust our numbers. Run your own numbers, especially some of the big wholesale outfits in town, which I won't name, but all of their deals look really good unless you look at them. So make sure you're you know, looking at comps the thing that I always try to do is, you know, it's it's not like you're looking at a deal, like how can I justify the price I'm trying to get? It's kind of like, what what do the numbers tell me, right? Like, and if there's a really low comp, for me, it's you kind of this process of how do I know I'm not the really bad one? You know, like, yeah, there's the good one that, you know, makes my value look great. Then there's this one next door that is a whole lot less. How do I make sure I'm not that house? But yeah, that being said, you know, I think the MLS is... I mean, a decent place now. I look at stuff all the time. We don't really buy much on the MLS, but I'll see people when I'm looking at other comps that bought flips on the MLS and do fine. And stuff sometimes sells at numbers I wouldn't think would make sense, but I see it and I'm like, cool, you know, there's a hundred grand spread there. You probably made 30 or 40, right? When it comes down to it. So, you know, the thing with the MLS, you're going to make a ton of offers and find agents that are willing to you know, kind of put up with that. Yeah. So that, or, you know, find a reputable wholesaler. So there's some options on how to find deals. What, what are running the numbers look like, Jason? What does that process, how do you do that? How would someone start who doesn't have a construction background? They've not flipped a house before. They're not a contractor. Well, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. So there's really two key numbers that you're, you're trying to analyze with, right? First, you have your ARV or your after repair value. We can touch on that in a bit. And that's basically you know, what is a house worth once it's fixed up? What can you sell it for? And then the second piece of the equation is your rehab numbers. How much is this renovation going to cost? So there's a few different methods I think people can use to, to get familiar with the numbers and try to nail down their rehab costs when they're analyzing a deal. The first one is honestly just talking with contractors, you know, go and, and try to meet contractors and just talk to them be like, hey, like, how much do you charge to paint price per square foot? How much is flooring price per square foot? And start getting familiar with their actual numbers. Um, that's great. And then you can go and look at materials on Home Depot, Floor and Decor, all that sort of stuff to kind of get a rough gauge 
or just like talk to investors and flippers too. Like, you know, for us, like more of the happening, be like, Hey, this is about how much we spend on a roof, about how much we spend. Yeah. We kind of have a rough price sheet of what we pay for stuff that we're glad to, to share. Just hit one of us up and mm-hmm. we'll send it to you. But the nice thing about that is, you know, if we know we pay 210 a square foot for paint, it's a lot easier to approach a painter like, Hey, this is kind of what I'm looking for. You know, I can afford to pay 210 for paint with, you know, you providing the paint, you know, so knowing some of that, I think is helpful in, in kind of finding, you know, contractors and stuff, but just having a guideline for, you know, what stuff costs. Cause if you haven't done it, it's, you don't know the difference in something that costs $5,000 and $10,000 and both can seem completely reasonable if you don't know. So I'd say that's something the best. If you do get a little bit further and, you know, you have something where it looks like you're actually going to pull the trigger on it, you can have contractors try to go out there and give you bids, you know, maybe have two, three contractors, don't, which is good because you get their actual prices. The only thing I would caution is don't do that all the time. Like if you have, if you're looking at 10 houses, don't expect Aaron, the contractor to go out to all 10 houses, right? Most of the time, they're probably going to stop talking to you after like the second one, or they're going to want paid for their time for each bid. Well, so, I mean, in, in jumping into that, I would honestly, I would offer to pay just because one, that sets up really good kind of expectations with you and the contractor of like, hey, I know your time's valuable. You know, I don't, I don't want you to waste your time. I know you've looked at a few houses for me or whatever. They may or may not take you up on that, but... I mean, I think offering because they're putting in work, they're going to go. And if they give you an itemized bid, like that's a few hours of work pretty easily. And then you, if you keep taking people in houses and keep doing that, they're, they're going to get tired of you pretty quick. But, you know, I think if you set the expectation with, you know, a few contractors of, Hey, like glad to pay you, you know, give me the bid, like to come up with a scope of work, they're going to be much more willing to work with you. And it's going to set up a good foundation for a good relationship in the future. Absolutely. That's a great piece of advice. And I think the other one that people talk about, like if you look on bigger pockets, all this sort of stuff, they say price per square foot. I personally don't like that because I think it can vary a lot with, you know, inflation with materials is a good example, or just from market to market. And I think that maybe from some high up analysis, it's good. But when you're really trying to get down into the the numbers and make a good offer on a property, and before you actually pull the trigger, like you need to know your numbers. So I don't love it. People use it. I would just use one of the the first couple methods that I had mentioned. And at first, it's going to take a while, you know, to try to like calculate prices and stuff. But if you analyze enough deals, you do it again and again and again, like you just get faster at it, like you do anything, like the more reps you do, the faster and better you get at it. So that's how I would, you know, run my numbers and get to my numbers for the the renovation portion of it. Did I miss anything there? Or would you like to add anything on? Would you build in a contingency and how much? Absolutely. So I would always build in contingency. I think that anyone that's flipped a house will tell you that they always go over budget pretty much. And so p- typically people say like 10% is probably fine. I think that's fine. I'd say 10% is a good rule of thumb unless you're getting into, again, the stuff that we didn't recommend of like gut rehabs, these old historic homes then I would budget maybe like closer to 20%. But the way we do everything, we don't necessarily do 10%. We just kind of look at the range of like what it could cost. And then we go ahead and take the higher range of that. So when it comes to each one of our line items, we try to be conservative with that. And then in total, that just gives us some contingencies built in. Yeah, and I would say some of this, maybe this is bad advice, but I'll say it anyway. I think some of it too kind of depends on, like we'll kind of build in numbers for, Say we're buying a house with a 10-year-old HVAC. It works perfectly fine, but it's 10 years old. We may build into our budget like that we need to replace it, but we may service it and it be fine and be able to sell it that way. But we're still kind of building that in of like, hey, if this comes up on an inspection that, oh, it's actually kind of shot, like we've already built that in. But if if we don't have to replace it and it's fine and functional, you know, we won't. Same thing with like, you know, sometimes we're, we're kind of like right there on a roof of like, you know, it probably has some life left in it, but we could also pull the trigger and replace it. We might do that with a roof too of, you know, we kind of budget for it, but don't immediately do it. So we'll kind of do that stuff. And, you know, that all depends on the market. In 2021, you could sell a house without a roof. 2022 and 2023, you could have a three-month-old roof and they could request another one because they don't like the color. So it's all kind of market dependent, but you know, we, we sometimes will kind of build in budget for things, but 
not immediately fix it. Or, you know, we may budget to do some stuff and it's, it's easier if it comes up on the inspection to address it then that we plan on doing anyway, but we'll kind of save it for that. Just, you know, save ourselves on negotiation on the back end, but that's kind of jumping ahead. But yeah, I mean, I think estimating rehabs is hard. You know, you need to be around people that, you know, have done it before or have really good, you know, kind of baselines for what you should pay for different things. And it's going to be very different in like your retail contractor and, you know, investor. And it's, it's finding that balance of, you know, we need, we need to be able to get a, like a deal for this, but like, I'm probably not hiring the dude on Craigslist who may or may not show up and like may quit halfway through, but I'm also not like hiring the super high end contractor, you know, either. So, you know, it's, it's striking that balance of like, you know, you need good quality, but you need reliability too. And there's like somewhere in between of, you know, trying to find that anything you would add to that, Jason, before we kind of jump to the next section? No. So, but one thing I will add, and maybe we were going to touch on this later, but obviously figuring out prices is one thing when it comes to running your numbers for the rehab. But the second piece is also like developing the scope of work, right? And that's really just like, hey, what are you going to do to the property? Are you going to retile all the showers in the house? Or are you going to leave them as is and maybe resurface them, right? And so for us, like the way you do that is you look at comps. And this is also kind of getting into ARVs and stuff too, is look at stuff, flipped houses in the neighborhood that have sold and like what they did to those properties. Because if you're flipping... And in all the neighborhood where price points are lower and all of them just have tub surrounds, you don't need to go and tile everything and spend that extra cost too. So again, like developing your scope of work, take a look at comps and figure out what they've done because there's no point in spending an extra 20000 on renovations if you don't need to. And if you're doing that, then more than likely your offer is not going to be competitive because everyone else that are putting in offers are not planning to do that extra 20 k of rehab. That's a good call. And we'll dive into that more when we talk about, you know, kind of where, where to budget, where to buy supplies, where to kind of maximize the value. But so the next thing is cool. You're at the point you have the house, you're, you have your construction, now everything works, right? Like you found the perfect deal. You know, what do I do now to, you know, how do we fund the deal? You know, what are options or recommendations for that? So got the deal. I've got my rehab bid life's good. I just need money. You know, how do we fund deals or how would you recommend someone getting started would, would fund a deal? So the, what most people, most people just don't have, you know, 200, 250,000 liquid in their accounts that they can just put towards. And if you do great, awesome. But most people don't, most people, like we talked about in the last week of, Hey, you're going to need some liquid 30 K 40 K, but that's not enough to fund the deal. So that's where hard money lenders come in. And for those of you who aren't familiar, hard money lenders, these are companies that give short-term loans for the purposes of rental, pro- not rental property, but investment properties. So fix and flips. So it'll be something like, you know, six, nine, 12 month terms, uh, typically, I don't know, 12%, 13% of the interest, maybe you know, two to three points. And they're going to loan you, depending on the deal, depending on the company, but up to probably 75% of the ARV you know, 100% of the rehab costs, maybe like 90% of the purchase costs, all of them kind of change from company to company. But and these, and these are largely asset based loans. Mm-hmm. So they're not gonna, they'll run your credit, they'll look at some of your experience, but it's, it's mainly based on them looking at the deal and seeing the numbers on the deal more than it is your traditional mortgage process where they are qualifying you and making sure you have the capacity to pay for it. It's more, they're looking at the deal you know, seeing if your numbers work on that. And it's, it's based a lot more on the asset than it is the, the borrower per se. Absolutely. And so we, there's tons of hard money lending companies out there. We personally like some of the, the more local guys. You have the big ones like Kiabi is one that we used in the past or giant national one, but we tend to like the more local people just because they know the areas and everything like that. It's nice. You can just meet them in person. And so we typically use two. First it is Longhorn funding or Longhorn capital. And then the second is Searchers Capital. So they're both probably two of the biggest in San Antonio and in Texas, honestly. Uh, So we use both of those for just depending on the projects that we have. But I would actually recommend that a lot of people check out Longhorn. And the reason why I say that is because they're big. I guess like the, the, the thing that sets them apart 
is that they try to, as long as the deal numbers allow it, they try to make you come to closing with as little as possible. So if they can, they'll try to give you up to 100% of the purchase and the rehab costs. You'll just have to come to close with some of those upfront points and fees, closing costs, nice closing points, costs, that yeah. sort of stuff too. But I don't know if you had a different take on those lenders or no. So and the and the thing with that too, which you know I'll say about Longhorn is well most lenders, but I especially know the way they kind of do stuff too. So most lenders, the benefit of it is they're you're almost getting a second set of eyes on your deal. So you know it's like Jade and her team at Longhorn, like her and her husband invest too. So they flip houses, they know the stuff. So you're going to get someone that's actually going to look at it too and make sure you're not buying a bad deal. You know, can things go wrong? Sure. But you're going to have kind of a second set of eyes on it where it's not just you doing that. And I know Jade especially really focuses on first-time investors, which we've had conversations with her and I'm like, that sounds like not who I'd want to specialize in working with but you know she's she's all about it right and but the big thing with that where you get the value add is you get a second set of eyes you get someone who's gonna like they're invested in the project and don't want you to fail you know some of the bigger lenders i mean they'll look at stuff but i i don't think it's as in-depth as someone local so i think that's a, a big benefit there but yeah so you know hard money loan you know, I think it's going to be your best bet. We do a mixture of that and private money. Private money is, you know, essentially, you know, people have some money sitting in an account. They want to make returns on it. And it functions the same, but kind of with less. We're able to get a little cheaper rates and they're getting, you know, a really good return on their money. But there's a little less red tape for the investor. And it's it's a trust thing, right? So honestly, I would recommend if someone is doing their first deal, I would not take private money. I think you need a to build experience and reputation before you do that just because you know it's someone's livelihood that they're entrusting you with or their retirement or whatever that looks like and you know i can say that with jason and i we've never we've never not returned to private lenders money we've never asked them to discount stuff like on deals we've lost money on it looks the same a lot of times they don't know that we lose money on it because not their problem, you know? So, but as a first time investor, I don't think you should use private money just because you don't have the track record yet. But anyway, so that's my take on that. So cool. You funded your deal, you know, you're, you're good to go. You found someone to do the loan. The next thing that we're going to kind of jump into is how do we find contractors that are going to do good work, do quality work, not run off with all my money? Where you know, where should I even look for that? Or how do I find those people? You want to dive into that? Yeah, I will. And just right before the one last note on the lending piece of it, tons of hard money lenders out there. The key thing as a first investor that I would look for is how to come to closing with closing with as little as possible, which is why we recommend Longhorn, but people can obviously do their homework and choose whoever. Because the biggest thing is by not having a ton of capital up front, you can have some extra in reserves for one, the the holding cost interest payments, um, but two, but if anything goes wrong too, right? Because if you had a $10,000 bill that was unexpected, but you fronted all this money, where are you going to get the extra $10,000 from? So it just allows you to have a little bit more in your pocket just in case anything happens, which let's happens on projects. And things will inevitably go wrong and you will go over budget. Yeah. So just like, yeah, just, just the reality. I wanted to throw that in there so when people are asking, you know, what, what should I focus on the most when it comes to the lenders? That's probably the thing I'd focus on most more than like the rate, the points. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. That and the other thing that you just kind of sparked too. The thing with hard money lenders is they all function differently. And to me, it's, it's not so much even about rates and points. It's about their process. Big part of that is the draw process. So the way these loans work you are going to, they're going to cover the purchase, but then a lot of times you're fronting the money for the renovation. And as you complete different steps that, you know, as you're forcing appreciation, you're adding value to the property, the lender is going to come back and reimburse you that money once they've seen that they've, you've increased the value of the asset they're lending on. So they're not just going to like cut you a check for the, the full rehab. They're going to want to see, okay, you're going to do the bathrooms. Okay. You did the bathrooms we've assigned this value to bathrooms. So their whole thing is 
it's thorough and you know they're making sure they're protected in the process but you have to a lot of times you're fronting the money to to get stuff going and you i guess this is probably more in our next step but you have to be methodical with how you're fixing stuff because they're going to want to see things done in a certain order to reimburse you that way so if you're hey my last step's the roof and you do the roof first they may say hey no that's not till you know this phase or whatever we're not giving the money back first so there's a learning curve with understanding how their draw process works and how they reimburse money and making sure you're familiar with that as well. And that looks different with every single lender. So another reason we like searchers and Longhorn is they make those processes easier where we've done stuff with different lenders where you had to have this like app and the app never works. And then someone has to come out, but they're always delayed a week. So like all of those things factor in, but like you're not going to see on the surface level. But anyway, yeah. how do we find our contractors? How do we make sure... Our contractor doesn't run away with our money. Yeah, so contractors, and if you talk to anyone that flips, they'll tell you that contractors may be one of the biggest headaches when it comes to flipping. It's it's the thing that can cause a lot of issues. By maybe, you mean they are. They are. That was, they are. Yeah, they are. So, you know, how do you find a good contractor? Because that's the thing that's honestly, for most people, besides buying the deal and, and actually make sure it's a good deal. That's the thing that's going to make or break your deal is, is your contractors. So the first thing I would say is referrals are one hands down the best way to find contractors. Typically, you know, a lot of people don't want to give away their GCs or they're kind of the, the guys that can do a little bit of everything, you know, the paint, the drywall, that sort of stuff. But at least when it comes to the trades, ask people like ask me or Aaron, ask anyone else that flips who the good trades are more than happy to share electricians, plumbers, foundation, roof, all that sort of stuff. And more than likely, if we use it, we reuse them. That means that one, we trust them. And two, their prices are good. So you don't have to, you know, I mean, you don't have to always worry like, Hey, am I getting ripped off here? Cause I don't know how much it should cost. So that's the first place I've never done it before. I don't know if Aaron has, but people talk about going to the big box stores, Home Depot, Lowe's early in the morning to try to find the guys there bright and early. Because more than likely, they're probably eager to work going to the paint store, Sherwin-Williams, asking them who the good painters are that are there by regularly. That's definitely a great place to go. But did you have any other ones that you can think of, Aaron? I think those are the two best for me. So that and just asking if you have a good, you know, good electrician, they probably know like, hey, who do you like to work with that does drywall? They probably know someone. Who do you like to work with that does HVAC? They probably know someone. So that's a thing. But... And then a few things that just kind of general notes on contractors. If you want work done, you're you're going to have to regularly be at the project. I, I guess I'll just kind of run through a, just a punch list item of like things to look out for. And don't do at least initially. Like I would not pay significant amounts up front, you know, and communicate with them. Hey, you know, we've not worked together. I'm glad to provide all the materials to get you started, and then I'll pay you X when you do X. Right, so. A lot of these, especially with GC, they want like 30, 40%, which on a big project can be several thousand dollars. And you're writing that check and hoping for the best. And yeah, so that's one thing. So provide materials, pay for labor, at least until you're comfortable with a contractor. Check their work, check references. But also like just because they've done good work in the past doesn't mean they continue to. They all have a shelf life. We've both had contractors who've done really good work for us that Sometimes the quality falls off a little bit. Sometimes they completely run away with your money and they may have done three or four projects for you that went well. So those are two big things. And then I think the other, you know, really important thing is, you know, saying like, Hey, cool, this is what I can afford to pay for this. And this is the quality of work I expect. The example I give a lot of times is like tile work, like, Hey, you know, we can pay X per square foot of tile. We expect the tile to be leveled and spaced and all that good stuff. So things that you don't think you have to communicate or, hey, when we're painting the outside of the house, we expect to be power washed before and, you know, seams caulked and all like it prepped well and all this stuff. Because if you don't communicate those things, it may or may not happen the way you think it should. So I think that's a big thing of, you know, just like level of expectation and finish work and, you know, all of that type of stuff. Stuff that you think you shouldn't have to communicate, you do. But yeah, I mean, those are things that you you always need to think about with contractors of, you know, making sure you're on the same page and then protecting yourself against the downside as well as you can. 
Absolutely. And I think going on that, the two biggest things before you work with a contractor, one, make sure you have a contract and you actually sign something that says, hey, we agree to this, this amount and this scope of work. So that way you can always have something to look back on. And then two, defining a scope of work and having that very detailed. Otherwise, you run into the whole, oh, I you said this, but I thought you meant this, or I thought you were going to take care of this, but nothing was ever written down. So make sure you have a line item scope of work, not just, hey, I'm going to rehab the house for $45,000. And then of that too, also be sure to outline like who's in charge of materials. Is it you as a contractor? We recommend that you provide the materials at least first. So one, you can get to know the prices for things, but two, you also get to select like the, the, the finishing tile, the flooring. All Make sure it's quality. Out. Make sure it's quality. Because if you live to the contractors, they're going to find the cheapest thing possible because they want to save money and make you know that margin. So definitely do that. And then some other just notes that I would throw in there too. When you're vetting people, one, like I like to ask them like, hey, how many projects do you have going on? Like how many projects can you do, right? Because if they tell you, hey, I can do a million projects, that's a red flag. But if they tell you, hey, I can only do two projects at a time and I already have two projects, more than likely you're going to have to wait. So just asking them that question, those sort of questions. And then the last thing that I'll say, and Aaron touched on this too, is don't be afraid to be, I don't know if means not the right word, but like stern when it comes to like the quality of finishes, right? When you're, when you're walking through properties and you see things wrong, don't be afraid to say like, Hey, this doesn't look good. This is not what I was expecting. Because if you don't do that early on, they're going to cut as many corners as they can because Aaron and Jason aren't saying anything throughout the project. And then you're going to get to the end and it's going to be all sloppy. You're not going to be happy. And at that point, it's going to be too far gone and they're not going to want to redo a lot of that work. Yeah. And the the one thing I'll say with that too is like also have grace where you can. Like if it's like a shower and they you wanted the tile stacked and they offset it, but it looks fine. To me, that's not like a, hey, let's rip it out. It's like, hey, let's make sure we talk about this before we do it. But like, this isn't what I wanted, but we can make it work. But it's like finding that balance of like, like there's times when it's like, no, it's rip it out. And then there's times when it's like, hey, I should make you rip this out, but we can make this work. And, you know, finding that balance with, you know, kind of having grace with them on like, it's not exactly what I wanted. Like, you know, the color's off or this is off, but it's really okay. And, but then there's times when it's like, this is like completely awful and we're redoing it. But I think like that builds trust with contractors too, of like, you know, like that's not really, that's not really how I wanted it, but we can, we can work with it on this, you know, I think can, you know, really go a long way in building trust. The other thing I would say, most contractors will tell you they do everything. Most of them don't. And if they do, they don't do it well. You know, it's, I think one thing that's a good sign for me is always like, if the drywall guy tells me like, I just do drywall. Like I don't do paint, I don't do floors, I don't do carpentry, I don't do any of that. Like I am the drywall guy. That to me is a really good sign because what you run into is a lot of these guys are just looking for consistent work and they'll say, hey, I can put in floors, but they don't know how to or they don't regularly do it. So they're trying to figure it out on your project and then you're getting like a less quality product. They're mad because it's taking them longer than they thought because they don't know what they're doing. And it just ends up this like mess of a situation where, you know, their painters and their paint may be great, but like they don't know how to do floors and the floors look awful. So you're in this weird situation where, hey, like, tell me what you're not good at. Like, you know, it's always a really good sign for me if they're like, hey, I 100% don't touch that thing. Right. Like, it's not my thing. So those are just some kind of like little tips, things to look out for. Anything else we've missed on contractors, Jason, or I think we've covered, yeah, I think we've covered most of it. But one thing that I would like to point out that you said, I love that you said like the whole grace period thing, because as much as we crap on contractors and make fun of them and say that they're terrible, all this sort of stuff, or they're just a pain in the butt at the end of the day, like they're people one. And then two, they're like a part of your team. When you're looking at, Hey, everyone that's involved from the lender to the contractor, to your listing agent, whatever. Like these are all people part of your team. And if you want to develop good relationships with them, work with them in the future, like you're going to have to treat them well too. So yeah, be stern, but figure out that level of grace and figure out, you know, how to treat them well. Cause if you treat them well, like more than likely they're going to want to treat you well and do good work. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this before. I mean, actually, we talked about it the other day. I had a, a trailer I flipped years ago now and 
our main contractor we use now. I told him to put carpet in it and he didn't ask me what kind and, and put in this carpet that was like absolutely hideous. And it wasn't like rip it out, but it was like, I called him and was like, do not ever put this in my house again. Like, or ask me before you ever think about doing this again. Like it was, it was like stern, but it wasn't like, Hey, I want you to eat all the costs of this because it was still workable. It was just kind of ugly, you know, kind of knowing that balance of like, it's not always rip it out, but there's some, sometimes it is right. Like we had a project recently where they literally redid the shower four times. The first one was my fault. The last three were theirs. So it was one of those things where it's like, Hey, this is a nice house and all this tile is crooked. And then it was a, Hey, the tile's not crooked, but it's not the pattern we ask for. So on some of that stuff, you know, we will say, Hey, you know, we keep redoing this. Why are like, let's make sure we're on the same page on this stuff. So it's, it's like striking that balance, but enough on contractors. So let's talk about, you know, some, where do we get supplies? Where do we recommend you get supplies for fixtures, all of that? You know, what are things that we think you can do in a flip to, you know, maximize your budget or increase the value or, you know, really make it stand out. Let's talk about some of the like kind of finish level type stuff that, you know, we do or we recommend. Yeah. And I'll touch on the supply stuff to start. So a lot of people think, hey, Home Depot, Lowe's, these are the best place to, to find a lot of the fixtures and that sort of stuff. And for, going back to the contractors, most of the times the contractors, they provide some of like the installation materials, right? Like they're going to provide the nails, for example, like you're not going to have to go buy that. So we're focused a little bit more on like the finished stuff. So what, where do we get light fixtures, plumbing fixtures, door handles, that sort of thing. And so Honestly, Amazon. Amazon is a great place for pretty much all fixtures and hardware. We use Amazon because if you go to Home Depot, you're going to find a Moen kitchen faucet for $200, for example. You can find a similar one that looks about the same. It functions exactly the same and it's $50 on Amazon and it'll be delivered in the next day or two. So we always do that with the exception of maybe ceiling fans. Home Depot usually has better ceiling fans. So we like go check out Amazon, believe it or not. For stuff like flooring, we usually typically use like floor and decor for flooring, tile, paint. You know, you, you're fine with Sherwin Williams, not a big deal. And then the other big, I think, item is vanities. Vanities can cost a lot. We usually get our vanities from Lowe's, I would say, but you can definitely shop those around. And then I know Hello, floor and decor has pretty good ones. Home Depots are kind of meh. They're kind of expensive, yeah. And then appliances, kind of shop around for appliances. You know, some. Sometimes Lowe's is cheaper, sometimes Home Depot is cheaper, sometimes Best Buy, Costco. Just go and search online for for that sort of stuff. But that's typically where we get most of our finish out materials. I don't know if I missed anything or any type of material. I don't think so. So talking about budget a little or, you know, kind of maximizing value. So I think an important thing is really looking at what your similar comps are selling for and making sure you're at similar finish levels. But some of that is, you know, Jason kind of told you where we find all these projects or supplies, but some of that is knowing kind of budget ranges because, you know, you know, your granite can vary a ton. And, you know, I think there's value in not getting the very basic level granite, but the difference in, you know, granite that's $40 a square foot and, you know, some high-end granite or quartz, it's $90 a square foot. It's probably not going to add that much value to your house. The only time we've ever done anything that nice is in a you know really high-end condo we did downtown. But with that being said, there's, there's several things like that where it's like, hey, you know, stay around two to $3 a square foot on tile. You don't need the 20 or $30 a square foot tile, you know, knowing, knowing that kind of stuff. And there's, you know, there's different stuff that you can, or like subway tile, subway tile is super cheap you know, might be the cheapest way to do a shower backsplash. And there's, you know, you can make it more interesting by doing different patterns, you know. So there, there's stuff like that where you can, you know, kind of maximize your your budget there. And then, you know, Jason talked about getting stuff off Amazon. Like we always add hardware, you know, we, we swap all the hardware in the house. So door handles, adding pulls to cabinets, all that stuff on Amazon is super cheap but it really ties the house together. So those are things we do. But I think the biggest thing is really looking at, hey, what am I, like, what is the product I'm going for? And what level of finish do I need for that? Like, 
do I need, you know, 19 million accent walls? Probably not. But putting one in the living room might really tie the thing together. And when they walk in, you know, I think sometimes when you spend money on like something like an accent wall, it shows that you're willing to, you know, essentially spend money on things that aren't super necessary in the house, but, you know, show that you really value making a really nice product. So we'll spend, you know, thousand, fifteen hundred bucks on an accent wall just because it shows that we care about the house and want to make it nice. Other things that, you know, go a long way that don't cost that much is we might tile the whole, you know, vanity wall in a bathroom. It might cost four or five hundred bucks to do that. But for some reason, it just has this appeal of being a lot higher quality than not doing it. So those are some, you know, some things that we will do that, you know, don't break the budget. But then there's, you know, there's other considerations of, you know, making sure things are functional, making sure there's at least one bathtub. You know, if you do both showers, you're eliminating families from buying the house. The other little thing that we, we've we kind of discovered recently that we do on every house now is anytime we're putting in a custom shower, we're like configuring the shower to fit, you know, shower glass that we can buy online that's a lot cheaper, you know, because a lot of these we found out if we make the shower and don't have guidelines for the size on it, we're buying custom shower glass and it might be 1500 bucks or 1800 bucks for, you know, the custom shower door. But if I look online and buy it on Home Depot or Lowe's or Amazon, I can, you know, buy the the pre-made glass and then tell the contractors the spec to build it to. So then I spend $400 on a shower door and it looks just as nice and it's just as functional and no one knows the difference. So that's one thing that like any of those sort of things where you can find ways to not do custom stuff or not have to get the custom size this or that or whatever is definitely going to help you, you know, go, go further on your budget and maximize the value there. What I miss, Jason, what else can we do or not do when, you know, flipping a house and thinking of how do I get, how do I make this thing sell for the most and keep my budget in mind? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing again is keeping your budget because it's very easy to be like, oh, well, this, this is only going to cost me, you know, a thousand extra dollars, hundred extra dollars. And at first it might not seem like a lot, but then you slowly add that up between, you know, 20, 30 line items and it's crap. Like I'm now $15,000 over. So it's really just trying to stick to the budget. And then the key areas that I like to focus on one, the kitchen, and then two, the master bathroom, those see, if you have a little bit more money in the budget and you can spend it, I would throw a little bit more money there again, not getting like the, the level seven granite versus the level one granite, something like that. But maybe like a level two, three granite, you know, somewhere in between, right? Maybe a little bit nicer as far as, you know, the the tile work or that sort of stuff, backsplashing behind the vanity. So those are the two areas I like to focus on because, I mean, honestly, if you're selling to a family or a couple, like that's the women, like the women love it. Like they they really do love those areas. And so I would, I would focus on that. And then going to st- like small things that we do to to save some money, but people don't really notice or not notice, but they don't mind one carpet in the bedrooms. If, you know, a lot of the times we're putting LVP down for flooring in the main areas and then maybe tile in the bathrooms, um, but carpet in the bedrooms, like carpet's much cheaper, much easier to install and nobody thinks twice about it. And people actually enjoy it because you want to be comfortable in your bedroom and having something soft on your feet is much more comfortable than, you know, cold tile. That's one. And then two is depending on the comps, if you notice like, Hey, everything has a shower surround, just resurfacing the tub and the shower surround too. And some of the tile, you don't need to rip out the walls, put in some new tile if the comps don't support it. So those are two things that we do. And then uh, this is just complete side note, but I just thought of it. If you're, (laughs) if you are ripping out the the shower walls to put in new tile, always raise the shower head. That's just like a side note because we notice in a lot of the older houses, the shower head is like five feet tall. And if you're already ripping out the the walls, you might as well raise that to, you know, seven feet or something. So yeah, somehow there was this like weird period of time in like the seventies where like humans were tiny. I don't know if that's real, but like all the old vanities are like super low. All the shower heads go to like chest level. And I'm like, was there a period of time when everyone was just small? Like did something change? But 
those are things that really stand out. Like if you have the old vanities that like sit below your waist, it's kind of weird. The shower heads that like hit you in the chest or shoulders also kind of weird. So those are things that, you know, we're all about trying to save and maximize where we can. But if those exist, we change them out. Definitely. But that's, that's, I think, everything I had on supply. Oh, cool. Yeah. And just, I mean, to kind of summarize or, you know, say some things that might get me in trouble. You, so you're not trying to like be on HG, HGTV. Like, I think a lot of people, it's like anyone can overspend on a flip. Anyone can, with unlimited budget, make it look amazing. But the goal is to really maximize that budget, figure out what you can do to make the most money. It doesn't have to look like, you know, you know, it should be featured on a TV show. And then the the hot take that Jason won't appreciate is I always like tell people that like their wives aren't designers. Like everyone like it's this, especially the first project, like, oh, I want to do this and that. And, you know, I want to do this like magical design here and, you know, all this stuff. And it's like the reality is like one, like your design sense probably isn't that good, but also like the goal is to really make money on it, not like make this like amazing looking thing that you you know show off to the world. Yeah, it should look nice, but like you don't need to do crazy stuff to get there. You know, it's finding that balance of like, you know, have fun with it. It's your first project, like enjoy it, whatever. You don't need to overspend to make things look like they're amazing or necessarily like what you do in your own house you're living in. You know, it's, hey, in this budget, what are the finishes that we need to hit the value we need? But that being said, so we're getting short on time. But the last thing that we want to talk about is selling your project, listing your project. How do you get it ready to go to the market? Some of our tips and tricks on that. So and there's a few different ways to approach this. And we will, I guess we'll just kind of look at this of today's market, which is much more of a buyer's market. You know, a few years ago, things were like flying off the shelves. You know, details didn't matter. Quality of work didn't really matter. Staging didn't matter. You could list anything with a discount agent that doesn't even put a description. It would sell. So we're not currently in that market. So things don't just fly off the shelves. You got to put some effort into it. So what are, you know, what are our thoughts? How do we find an agent? You know, do we stage the house? Do we landscape? What do we, what do we do to not only make sure it sells in a timely manner, but, you know, make sure we're getting the the most out of it when, when it goes to the project being finished, we need to sell the thing. I think I might be skipping a little bit ahead here, but I will start by saying that a realtor is going to be very, very important when it comes to listing. And a good realtor is 1000% worth the commission. You might be able to work it where they, you know, maybe take 2% on the listing side instead of 3%. But I would pay someone 3% all day if they're a rockstar agent that knows what they're doing. And so a good agent will help you out with a lot of that stuff that you were talking about, whether, hey, is it worth staging? What do we need to do a little landscaping? Because they know those small things that you don't really necessarily think about that's going to be appealing and attract more buyers. So in the market that we're in today, I'll, I'll just take, you know, how we do things, for example, we stage most of our properties. That's just kind of the standard. We try to build it in the budget, uh, especially I would say anything with like that has maybe a more awkward layout, room layout, or there's some, some weird rooms in there. It just really helps buyers get a visual of like, hey, you know, it could be used as a little office or a little reading nook, that sort of thing. So we always say like, I would plan on probably staging in the market that we're in right now. And then if you're in like a super like entry level price point, it's probably not as important, mm-hmm. but anything a little higher price point, or as Jason said, anything weird, like we have a house now that has like a kind of weird little addition that if it wasn't staged, you'd be like, what the hell do I do with this? But when it's staged, you're like, oh man, there's a perfect office. Yeah. So anything like that, but you kind of get over a certain point. And honestly, we're kind of like stage everything right now, just because it's a market we're in and it matters. Absolutely. And again, like a good agent will be able to kind of give you like guide you through that, right? Whether it's worth it, whether it's not help you. And a good agent will also, and some agents, they're investors too. Like I connected with investor one we used, like she flipped homes before she has rental properties before. So she understands when it comes to trying to maximize every single dollar, because I mean, any agent, I guess will tell you to just throw more money at it because it'll help obviously help it sell it faster. Right. 
but a good agent that's investor friendly and they'll understand like, Hey, there's not an unlimited budget. How do we work within that budget to have the best chances of selling and create the best product? So, but I don't know if you want to maybe jump into like how to find an agent. Cause there's, there's millions of agents out there, right? Like you walk into a Starbucks and there's probably a dozen agents inside. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, I feel like we kind of got lucky with, you know, Tanya's great. If you need an agent in San Antonio, hit us up and Chris is great too. So we kind of have two agents to do different things. Tanya more focuses on our flips and kind of more finished products. Chris kind of lists our as is stuff or trailers, whether they're flipped or not. But with that, I mean, I would want to see one, their experience, not that like having a bunch of transactions necessarily means that you're good or bad. But what it does tell you is that like they can get things to the finish line. And, you know, that's, that's important, right? You know, so I'd also, so transactions to me matters. Maybe it doesn't to other people. I'm not saying you can't be a newer agent and be really good. You definitely can, but I would want some sort of track record. Like I'm not using like my cousin or my, you know, wife's whatever, you know, whatever. I wouldn't do the whole like friend family thing just because everyone's an agent I would want people that, you know, know what you do, know, you know, how you work. I would also want to make sure you're aligned with kind of your priorities, which for us is always, we want to sell this thing as quick as we can because, you know, the cycles of money matter. It's a big difference if we can sell something in 30 days and 120 days. So knowing when to push values and when not, I think is important. You know, we always have kind of a general idea of how we want to list stuff, what price points, but we're also obviously getting the opinions of our agents on all this stuff. So, you know, I would ask around like other investors, like Tanya lists some list houses for other people we know now, because, you know, they ask us and that's who we recommended. So I would, you can look on all the like bigger pockets, all that stuff, but I would, you know, I would prioritize that people are actually doing transactions you know, that they understand what you do and your objectives with listing, selling, flipping. That's important to me. And then, you know, I think the biggest thing is just really communicating with all of our people. Like one, I want someone who can, as offers come in, they can evaluate those. So, you know, our whole thing is like, within reason, like, don't blow up the deal. Once it's under contract, get it to the finish line. So, you know, we're not crazy about like, we're not going to like walk away over a few hundred dollars on something. You know, we're all about like, just get it to the finish line. But also with that, you know, making sure your agent's able to look at the different deals coming in and kind of evaluate like, which we've seen a lot in the past year of stuff that falls apart, like more than I've ever seen in the five years I've been doing this of Hey, this went on a contract. We're a month in and their financing fell through. So, you know, them being able to evaluate, you know, the quality of an offer, but also like knowing if looking at the agent too, like the agent on the buying side of like, do they do deals? Is this their first one? Is this like, you know, all of these things that matter that your agent needs to be able to have the ability to do to make sure that you can get the thing sold and ultimately get the most for it. So, you know, good agents are going to, you know, easily make their money, you know, what you pay them. They're going to negotiate probably better than you would. So I think all these things matter. I don't know if that, you know, answered your question of where, how, or what to look out for an agent, but just kind of, you know, spitballing some, some things that come to mind when we're trying to find someone to list a house. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that one thing you said, and I want to touch on that too, is the the filtering noise. Like basically a good agent should filter the noise for you, right? So stuff coming in through uh, potential buyers, the buyer's agents and stuff, you know, they should be filtering to you and you should only begin like, Hey, this is the offer. This is this, this is that. The facts really a big kind of red flag for me is if something's happening on the buyer side, the buyers are stressing, then they tell your agent, then your agent starts stressing. And then they tell you and they're trying to stress you out too. Like they should be filtering a lot of that out. They shouldn't be stressing you because that's their job is to kind of figure that out and then come to you, you know, with the news and the facts. So that way you can make the best. Decision. No, that's, that's good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Someone who can, can kind of filter out the noise, like I don't need to know about the buyer's problems. I need you to like figure it out and like tell me when you need a decision made. Right. Like 
I don't need to know if you're stressing out. Like I just, you know, and there's, there's some of those that good or bad, you know, it's like, I don't need to be involved in all the drama of it. I just need you to like kind of handle it and tell me when you need a decision made. So no, I think that's really good. Yep. And then it flows the other way too, right? Because if Aaron's in a bad mood and he gets maybe some news he doesn't want to hear and he tells the buyers that he's under contract with to piss off, you know, Tanya or our agent is probably not going to tell them those exact words, right? She's probably going to be diplomatic and not blow up the deal. And so a good agent too will, will help you filter the other way as well. So yeah, there may or may not be times when I'm like, tell them to go F themselves. And then it's like, okay, calm down. What, what do we actually do to, you know, resolve the situation? But yeah, and I think that's good. Man, I think we're, we're kind of up on time. Anything before we kind of wrap? I think the, just the general theme throughout last episode, this episode really is understanding that you're going to have to work with a lot of different people throughout the process, right? So that's your lenders, contractors, agents, and that sort of thing. And so as a new flipper, someone that's never done it before, realize that you're a new flipper and like ask questions, like try to, you know, use lean on those people, but at the same time, like realize that you're new and you're going to have to pay those people what they're worth, treat them well, because ultimately like they're going to be so valuable to you as a first time flipper. So it's not worth the, Hey, let me try to beat up my realtor. Cause I want them to list at one and a half percent. Right. Or, Hey, I'm trying to beat my lender down because I want to be charged no points on the, the loan. Just taking things as they come and just realizing that the value that those people could provide and building those relationships, I think are going to be very important for any first time flipper. I think, I think that's good. You know, kind of having the humility to know what you don't know and and being able to ask for help or, you know, maybe it's like, cool, you want to partner with someone because they know what they're doing. And, you know, it's better to make half the profit and learn than it is to make full the, all the profit. And maybe there is no profit. So, you know, I think that's a thing that, you know, I think it's a, a good trait in people wanting to get in this business of, hey, I'm willing to learn and willing to admit that I, you know, don't know everything. And because a lot of times we see people that are like, oh, I want to jump in. I don't want to split profits with people. I don't want to like ask people for help because, you know, then people know maybe I don't know everything. But, you know, having the humility to kind of jump in and ask questions, connect with the right people, I think is going to serve you well in this. But yeah, that's, that's kind of all we have. Hopefully this has been helpful shoot, we could probably talk for another hour or two on all this stuff and dig in more. But, you know, our goal was to kind of give you in a, I guess in two episodes, you know, how do I flip a house? How can I break that down as well as I can? And then, you know, obviously if you have questions on any of this stuff, we are an open book, glad to share any resources or anything we have for there, you know, kind of helping you all out. And yeah, so if you want to connect with us, the best place to do that is probably our Instagram, mine is Aaron.Beal. Jason is investor Jason Lee. And that's all for now. And we will see you next week. All right. Bye, guys.